Again, the smartest in the land in the world broadcast takes to the ether here from the Porpoise of Fruititude, located somewhere in Lower California. Uh, yeah, that's Bootsy Collins from the album Christmas Is Forever. Merry Christmas, baby. The only Christmas music that we're allowed to listen to here at the Porpoise of Fruititude. <laughs> Jennifer's here. Hello. Hi. Um, we're just sitting around the pool here. Um, we don't actually have a pool. We just have a dish of cranberries, but Giancarlo's been... Pouring sauce over our thighs all day long, and it's very sticky situation here. I just want to tell you that. Um, you know, when you um, when you when you have a pool boy that's as dedicated as Giancarlo is, it's just astonishing how many thighs he can get to in one afternoon, um, and the amount of sauce, which I really I was I was surprised, frankly, fr- and then delighted, and then sticky uh, later on to find out how great a holiday can be. Um, happy eggnogging uh, to everybody out there. I hope you're having a good holiday season. Um, I'm sorry that I'll miss you in Paris, uh, although we'll talk about Paris in a little bit. Uh, Jennifer has a report from uh, way behind the front lines, from <laughs> 9,000 miles away. And uh, uh, we were going to be in Paris, when was it, today? Mm-hmm. We are going to be in Paris today, but we're not. Um, I'm going in for eye surgery tomorrow morning. By the time this drops, I'll probably be done with my eye surgery. And thank you for all your wishes. I appreciate everyone who... Went online and wished me well and wrote me emails and all the comedians who touched base with me. Thank you so much. I have glaucoma, uh, you may have known. Yes, I've been treating it with epic amounts of marijuana since I was 15 years old before I even knew I had it. Um, I also have cataracts and uh, uh, we're just having to have, finally the time has come that I have to have operations on all this jazz. Um, it's not life-threatening, but um, I won't be able to see out of one of my eyes for a day or two, I think, and then it comes back. and just, then Just a day. Uh, just a day. And then uh, then I'll be able to see better, supposedly, so I'll have a lighter prescription than I have now. I haven't actually seen anything since I was about eight years old. And uh, when I was moving up in the classroom, uh, bit by bit by bit, until finally, I think it was Mrs. Hogg and my third-grade teacher went, what is wrong with you? Because I was sitting at that point about three inches from the blackboard. And so I was sent to the eye doctor. And uh, they used the same machine, by the way, that they did in 1968, I want you to know that, to diagnose eyes. The big metal one that looks like like a 1940s hygiene movie. <laughs> and it's got these weird lenses that click into place in it that are big glass lenses. And they go, is this better, number one or number two? Number two or number three? Number three or number four or number four or number five? And they click, 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 click. And you have to pick them. And I remember being so relieved uh, when I got my first pair of glasses. Of course, they were big, blown, blown. They were blown uh, because I went to school in Germany. And uh, they were blown Hornunems. <laughs> I went to school in Stuttgart, which means stud garden, obviously. Um, <laughs> I went to school in Germany, and I came home with them, brown horn rooms. I was approximately four feet tall with brown horn rooms, and my voice much the same as it is now. So you can imagine what a wonderland childhood was for me. Then I don't remember picking my own pair of frames until a little bit later. I don't think you were allowed to. My, I don't remember my parents giving me a great deal of leeway going like, oh, there's all these dazzling frames. Why don't you pick some out? Or you can have shades. That wasn't an option then. First of all, there was only glass glasses then. There was no plastic um, lenses. So glasses weighed a ton. They weighed a lot on your face. Uh, about seventh or eighth grade, I demanded the wire rim ones. Shut Ooh. up. I demanded the wire rim ones. And um, yes, I have mail. 
It's Meg Ryan. She never leaves me alone. We're always meeting <laughs> under the Space Needle at that weird coffee shop. And um, the, uh, it, it, the the kind of wire rim glasses that I think of are the kind your shop teacher wore in eighth grade. You know, they were mm-hmm. kind of steel rimmed and they were rectangularish, not very hip at all. Then by high school, uh, I had a little more autonomy and I was able to pick the glasses I wanted. So I got this really groovy pair that only had um, a what we call a, a nose piece and um, the two temples. It didn't have, there was no structure to it at all. And I wore these progressives, um, not progressives, um, the kind that, you know, turned into sunglasses. But there was no plastic ones then. They were giant pieces of, they were literally the size of Coke bottle bottoms. <laughs> and um, there was like an Andy Dick character. And I wore those. And then I was running across the street with Donnie one stoned in ceremony center and they fell off my face and the bottom chipped off them. And I wore them anyway, but they looked so bitchin'. And then I think the ones I was wearing when I first met you were the giant Elton John ones. Mm-hmm. Except and then you had the vintage pair. Oh, right. I had a vintage pair by that point, too. Those were the cel- yellow celluloid? ones. Celluloid? Yeah, those were yellow celluloid. They looked like James Dean. Those or were um, very cool. Yeah. James Dean when he listened to Bartok kind of glasses. and uh, <laughs> As he did. Uh, but you could buy vintage glasses at people's garage sales in those days. And a lot of people still had all their celluloid glasses from the 40s and 50s kicking around. So I would buy the frames there and then take them to the crappy optometrist that I went to. And then they would put in uh, tinted shades and whatnot. So um, I, I called them Milton John glasses, but they were Annie Hall glasses. I got them in like 76, 77. They were great big brown horn rims but they were huge and um i remember going to see annie hall and loving diane keaton's glasses in the movie so much which i think are ralph lauren and um the clothes are ralph lauren i don't know about the glasses i don't know if the glasses were the frames pretty hip frames and uh i remember going to school finally when i got them and everyone hey elton john and i was like they're not elton john they're annie hall like i had to (laughs) defend them for you because elton john was evidently the only flamboyant glasses wear then, of course, later it was, hey, Buddy Holly forever and ever, which is hilarious because um, Buddy Holly died f- six months before I was born. Uh, coincidence? I don't think so. And I bear no resemblance to Buddy Holly no. whatsoever, except that we both wore glasses. Um, the best thing I ever saw from Buddy Holly was he was in a group before he was in the crickets called Buddy and Bob with his buddy Bob and uh, when they were in Lubbock. And they were like a country duo. And um, at the Hard Rock Cafe in Las Vegas, where the STDs um, come in a mister, um, there was a, 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 a display case. And they had all kinds of stuff. It, you know, they kept changing it out. But one of them was Buddy and Bob's um, boots from their act when they were teenagers. Mind you, I don't think he was much more than a teenager when he perished. 21, maybe? Was he older than Sid Vicious or younger? Maybe a couple months older. They were both really? 21, right? Well, yeah, 21. Um, and they had boots that said on the back of them, Buddy and Bob. And that I remember... What kind of boots? Cowboy boots, like show cowboy boots, like black and white cowboy boots, clearly to wear on stage. Um, I remember thinking, that is so cool. Buddy Holly's boots from like 1957 or whatever. Um, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So I'm getting surgery in my left eye um, today, uh, the day we're talking about this. Which is tomorrow to me, but yesterday to you. And then um, next Monday, uh, right eye. And then uh, we'll see what happens after that. So anyways, we're on the road with the Who's Line guys. And we'll be on the road in um, uh, Gee Whiz. Where are we? We're in um, Florida, I think. Well, first of all, let's, let's cut to the chase. I'm not in Paris this week. I'm not doing the Royal Albert Hall. The Royal Albert Hall is going to be Mike McShane, our old friend. Uh, Jeff Davis, um, Chip Eston, uh, Colin Mockery, Brad Sherwood. Josie Lawrence, Clive Anderson, who's a, I think a mammal, and uh, Linda and Laura, 
or as Dan Patterson calls them, Laura and Linda. Um, Laura Hall and Linda Taylor will be thrown down on the um, musical side. And it's going to be great fun. And they'll be there on the 15th and 16th. I will not be there because I have to recover and recoup. So I won't be doing the podcast at Shakespeare and Company. I'm sorry. I won't be at Royal Albert Hall. And I won't be at the Comedy Store sitting in with the Comedy Store players on the 17th. Or the Soho. Or the Soho Theater, which was the f- 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 17th. The, the uh, Comedy Store was the 18th, I think. I won't be at any of those gigs. I'm sorry I won't see you at the podcast at the Soho. Steve... Uh, and everybody at the Soho Theater has been really understanding about it. Everybody's been most understanding about me having to do this. Why now, Greg? Why are you doing it now? Because um, my doctor told me uh, two things. One, uh, I said, doctor, doctor, give me the news. And he said, I've got a bad case of loving you. No pill is going to cure my ills. And then I said, you might as well face it. You're addicted to love. The lights are on, but you're not home. Your mind is not your own. Um and so uh, a bunch of girls came in in miniskirts, and uh, I lip-synced for ages and ages. And then um, I did coke in a Parisian hotel room, and that's what happened to me. But uh, she said, uh, you have to. I said, uh, I was going to Australia with Colin and Brad, as you always discussed, our last episode that we talked about. You remember Colin and Brad sitting in the uh, dinginess, the confines of the Happy Endings Bar, uh, located in King's Cross in Sydney, uh, where we had a, a good old time uh, having a few drinks there and uh, digging our Aussie mates. No one gave me any weed. And um, uh, uh, Colin and Brad and I had a, a grand time. We finished off in New Zealand. Uh, subsequent to that, I don't think I've spoken to you since then. We played um, uh, Wellington City, two shows in Auckland. Uh, uh, actually, Takapuna. Takapuna. Uh, we, <laughs> we played outside of Auckland City in Takapuna. We played the Wellington Opera House, which the last time I was at the Wellington Opera House, I'm about to drop a name on all y'all. Um, Sylvester McCoy came with his son. Sylvester McCoy plays the, um, the uh, rabbity wizard uh, in The Hobbit. Um, and of course, for our sharp-eared listeners, you will remember he was a Time Lord and played Doctor Who. I knew Sill from uh, viewing an inconceivably short-lived um, sci-fi series called Space Cadets. Um, that was me, Bill Bailey, uh, Craig Charles. Yes, Craig Charles from Red Dwarf fame. Bill Bailey from Red from Bill Bailey fame. Uh, Black Books was his show, was it? Yeah, he was on the mm-hmm. Dylan Moran show, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, the three of us were, they, it was a panel show and they were the captains and I was the chair and we had, um, oh my God, William Shatner, uh, Walter Koenig, Ed Bishop from UFO, um, uh, Terry Pratchett from Discworld. Um, oh yeah, I got to meet all these people. No, new, no, Neil Gaiman wasn't on. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you I met Neil Gaiman, but I didn't. I did meet Terry Pratchett, however, and now he's passed. Met Douglas Adams, but not on that show. Met him at a birthday party once. That's another story. Um, wasn't the friendliest guy in the world, but he's gone now, so let's not speak ill of the dead unless they're George H.W. Bush, which you're getting to. So, uh... Herbert Walker? Herbert Walker. Um, uh, uh, Walter Kanan was great, um, and I said, we love you as Chekhov. He was in the makeup chair, and he went, Greg... Chekhov is but one role I've played in a long career. And I was like, but you were in eight movies and two seasons of a television show. Uh, you know, I didn't say that, but it was uh, Shatner danced, um, kissed Craig Charles. And uh, I have an autograph picture of all of us together that Bill Shatner autographed for me. Um, he was fantastic. Just the life of the party. And I said to him, Bill, um, what did you fly over on? And he went, Virgin Atlantic. And I went, what did you think? And he went, they're, I go, they're nice, aren't they? And he goes, yes, Craig. They're nice. <laughs> William Shatner, um, or you met Eartha Kitt, right? Yes. William Shatner, Eartha Kitt, 
and Adam West speak exactly in real life as they did in their characters on TV and on the stage. Yes, fantastically, and it's it's delightful. I think it went, hello, yeah, it's was, nice to a, meet you. She was purring. Yeah, hello, Jennifer. She was yeah. tiny. Yeah. And Adam, Adam West said, Greg, there's three people from Walla. You don't know one. There's me and a guy named Doug. You don't know him. That's what he said to me. You don't know him. Tonight, there'll be no boundaries. Um, he was... <laughs> Adam West was the greatest person I've ever met. And on my voice tape, you don't have voice tapes anymore, or you know voice reels that you use to audition for voice things. My voice reel is Adam West going, quick, Greg, to the Batmobile. Because <laughs> I got him to do it for me. Um, yes, I made Adam West say quick right to the Batmobile because that's then, how sad I am. And then I, then I started laughing and he goes, well, you were heading for the Batmobile, you devil, you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we won't be doing any of those gigs. I won't be at the Soho. We'll reschedule all of these. Yes, I can't promise yes. you when. Maybe the spring. Shakespeare and Company has been lovely and said, you know, whenever we can. Right, Adam's been cool there. Yes. Uh, Steve at the Soho. Everybody who works at the Soho. Everybody who works at the Shakespeare. The players were cool, of course, and were like, "Get well." Um, uh, Dan, Dan and Mark, who make Who's Line, we're going to shoot this season's Who's Line in February. So everybody relax. It'll be our sixth season on the CW. Aisha's back. We're all back. Um, we're gonna. So we'll be on the air again. I don't know when it will go on the air, but I know we're shooting this year. Um, and yes, my eyes will be fixed by then. And my eyes will adore you. I never laid a hand on you. and uh, uh, But we'll, re we'll rebook all of those things. I will be back at the Comedy Store. I will be back at the Soho. I will be back at uh, Shakespeare and Company. Uh, the Royal Albert Hall, hey, we'll roll the dice on that one. <laughs> I've already played the Hollywood Bowl and the uh, Opera House in Sydney with uh, Brad and Colin this year. And we had a really good time. Well, as I say, we played the Wellington Opera House, which was really good fun. Then we played Takapuna outside of Auckland City, which was really good fun, too. Really groovy deli in Auckland City. And then um, we played... Um, was that the Maori deli? No, yeah, it was uh, called the Federal Deli, uh, all run completely by Maoris. And uh, uh, I had latkes with poached eggs. And I have to say the latkes had a distinct New Zealand flavor. They weren't exactly like straight up Brooklyn latkes. They weren't straight out of Brooklyn, <laughs> let me put it. They were more like straight out of this, the North Island uh, of New Zealand. A little more onion cakey than than uh, uh, than laka e, but hey, you know when in Rome, when in when in Takapuna, take a take a hakahuna, <laughs> and smoke some electric puha, which no one laid on me. Anyway, um, it, my tale is too sad to be told. Then we went to Napier, which is an Art Deco city. What do you mean by that? Uh, there's a bunch of remnants of their Art Deco past, evidently. That was really important to them. I think it was a stop on the cruise lines, too, in the 20s, oh, right. which is why there's so much cruise ship, you know, things. I went to an antique store and saw, you know, they had all this Deco stuff in there. A lot of buildings are Deco. The theater looked like a theater in Miami from the 20s. You know, there was that weird, uh, the lighting and the sconces and the, uh, like, er, you know, a mixture of Erte and Miami. And... Um, the crowd was fantastically dull. <laughs> the, uh, I, uh, Brad well, that goes up, with Art Deco, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right? They weren't in Art Deco outfits. Brad brought up this, this couple to do a game where we, they have to fill in the sentences for us, right? You put your hand on them. You go like, oh, I'm really hungry. I could go for a... And you put your hand on the person and they go, a sandwich or whatever. 
well, this, they brought up this guy and this woman, and Holland goes, oh, I'd li- I haven't had this much fun since. And he puts his hand on the guy, and the guy goes, since I went to a gay bar in San Francisco. Then the next one out of his mouth was some horrible sexist mm. thing. Then Brad went over to him and went, you're not allowed to say anything sexist, racist, or homophobic for the rest of the game, okay? How'd that go? Uh, he calmed down. Then uh, later in the show, I asked for a suggestion for what does your cousin do for a living? Pick the cousin with the most interesting job. And the person went, they milk cows. And at that point, I fell on the floor and I laid there for a while. And it, someone reviewed the show, believe it or not, and gave the audience a bad review. And I'm not making this up. I'm not going to read it because I'm not vengeful. I love New Zealand and I think people are lovely there. But the audience got a bad review at the show. We, they were like, I believe they called us valiant and said, Greg had a quick meltdown and said, but you would have too if you'd heard these suggestions. I think they thought they were trying to be funny. And like late in the show, we asked for like a, a, a profession and a guy in the front went, proctologist, like that. And I was like, you really? We, we've been doing this for an hour and a half up here. And you really think yelling proctologist, by the way, a middle-aged man with silver in his hair. Not a, not, you know, not a yob, not an oik, not a kid. It was pretty wild. Anyway, I still love you, New Zealand. Uh, Napier, wow. I don't know when I'll see you again. Um, but hopefully soon. Uh, we're on the road in January with uh, Mr. Drew Carey. That's right. You know him as um, Hey Pig from the Drew Carey Show. Uh, uh, he's also the host of uh, um, The Rice is Pride on um, Game Show Network. And we'll be in Florida with him on the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th. That's uh, Fort Myers, Jacksonville, Orlando, and Clearwater. Uh, I think we have more dates with him, too. Oh, Fort Lauderdale on the 13th of January. And, oh, no, then Ryan goes back out with us for a couple days. The 18th and 19th of January in Thousand Oaks and Oroville. Then we go to Arkansas on the... 24th, 25th of January, and then Spokane on the 31st. And I think those are with Dave. I don't know. Some are with Dave. And here, if you go on Who's Live Anyway, we actually have tour dates. And our cast has evolved now. Chip is going to be on a bunch of dates with us. And, uh, oh yeah, here it is. It's, it actually says clearly, Ryan will be at the date in Thousand Oaks and uh, Oroville. And then Dave Foley's Arkansas and Oklahoma and Spokane. And Boise and Reno. And then Chip plays with us in February in Asheville, North Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee, Charlottesville, Virginia. And then we go back out with Ryan in February. So look at our group, All Sexy. We've got uh, Chip Eston in the group now, Dave Foley's in the group, Drew Carey's in the group, and Ryan Stiles is in the group. So stop asking. <laughs> is, is Colin and Brad going to go? No, I was just on the road with them for two weeks, you guys. That's as far as that goes. Um, I love them, but let's not, as Fred Astaire says, let's not get too chummy. An otter on the loose is eating koi from a formal garden. This is from the BBC. It's an errant otter. Well, what about the disciplined otters? <laughs> Why don't they get any press anymore, Jennifer? Uh, it, it's sad. I, I can't. It, the, the, the thing that is a mystery to me is that they don't know how the otter gained entry. That's an enduring mystery. <laughs> Why don't otters make it evident how they're going to um, make ingress into your uh, area? An errant a formal announcement, right? A, 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 a card that you hand the butler mm-hmm. when you arrive at the, mm-hmm. uh, in the foyer. An errant river otter eating its way through prized koi carp in a famous garden in the Canadian city of Vancouver. 
I'm going to beat this writer to death, whoever wrote this opening. <laughs> Talk about burying the lead. Th- eating its way through prized koi carp in a famous garden in the Canadian city of Vancouver has so far evaded capture. Isn't that exactly the wrong? Wouldn't you have said um, uh, otter at large? Area otter at large after a killing spree? <laughs> Officials at Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden Yes, you heard me right. Sun Yat-sen Classical <laughs> Garden say they do not know uh, how uh, the other the otter gained entry. Oh, I don't know. It's a garden. He's an otter. Right? I'm guessing he dug a tunnel with a uh, a, a spade. Or they're, a, they're known to be clever. Maybe maybe he swam there. <laughs> they're working with the city's park and aquarium board to safely capture and relocate the animal. The otter believed to have eaten seven of the fourteen fish since it appeared in the garden last weekend. Communication Director Debbie Chung said the pond and its koi were an important part of the garden and had a cultural significance. One fish, dubbed Madonna, is an estimated 50 years old and has been at the garden for some two decades. Some of the koi have been with us for a long, long time. We see them as part of the team, she said. The tourist attraction, as well as the adjacent public park, were closed last Friday to facilitate containment of the river otter. So the otter's not a team player. No, and has given no indication to the authorities of how it gained entry to this garden of some repute. The Dr. Sun Yat-sen, what is it, the Pleasure Garden? Classical Chinese Garden. No, I guess Sun Yat-sen wouldn't have a Pleasure Garden, <laughs> no, would he? No, the, the The Genghis Khan Garden of Spawning. <laughs> the Vancouver Bark Board has hired a wildlife relocation expert to catch the creature and transport it to the Fraser Valley in southwestern British Columbia. Parks Director Howard Norman said the first trap set earlier this week failed when the hinge that would have captured the otter ended up blocked by a branch and the animal simply feasted on the bait. The otter did take our tuna, did take our trout, did take our chicken, he told the BBC. Not a very good plan. I want to know how much they put on that. Um, <laughs> this is like the Meow Mix commercial. Right, so why should this otter ever leave? I want tuna. I want chicken. I want trout. Please deliver. <laughs> I like this, the sentence structure of Howard Norman. The otter did take our tuna, did take our trout, did take our chicken, said Leonard Cohen, <laughs> parks director. <laughs> then we take Berlin. Now a series of traps will be placed around the garden and park so they can catch the otter and allow it to be relocated to, quote, a really nice new home. This is just crazy. (laughs) Otters are carnivores and their main prey is fish. So wherever you put it. A koi pond seems good. uh, Sitting ducks, anybody? (laughs) You put it. The otter lives in Vancouver. Garden staff say they're looking forward to life returning to normal. Really? You mean before when the otter didn't eat all the fish, that's when things were normal? With their 50-year-old fish named Madonna. Yeah, that's so normal. (laughs) Modeled, the classical Chinese garden is built as the first of its kind built outside China. Modeled after the Ming Dynasty Scholars Garden in uh, Suzhou, a city west of Shanghai, it is located in Vancouver's Chinatown neighborhood. More on this story. Oh, no, that's from July. Otter caught feasting on koi carp in Swindon. I guess it's it's a ring. And then one from December of 2016. Colchester koi carp replaced 45 fish killed in park. <laughs> well, 
we had a bunch of koi here when we first moved in that the previous um, people who had this house had um, installed. And we gave them names um, of the San Francisco Giants at the time. So there was Barry Bonds, Jeff Kent, Marvin Bernard, um, J.T. Snow and whatnot. And an otter, I think it was an otter. It (laughs) It was was a raccoon. It was not an otter. We don't have uh, river otters here in in Lotus Land, no. We have coyotes, we have possum, we have deer, we have... um, We had a hawk. We had a hawk that used to eat carrion on the telephone pole. Um, We have um, mice and uh, um, blue jays, whatnot. But the uh, this uh, it was hummingbirds. Just hummingbirds, which are as you know vicious and destructive. Uh, the whirring of their wings keeps you up at night. Uh, the this animal disguised as a raccoon and had a mask on would come in in the garden at night and and eat the fish until we had a screen constructed and placed over the koi pond. And the last few koi lived out their lives and what can only be described as relative normality, although I'm sure the threat of the raccoon mm. climbing on top of the screen and trying to get through <laughs> it anyway must have not made their nights that restful. But I never understood the idea of filling a goldfish pond full of koi mm-hmm. in a neighborhood where there are raccoons who will do anything, basically. Well, and combining it with a, a, the fountain sound because raccoons want to wash their food so it's it's a one-stop shopping situation for raccoons you got the koi yeah then you you can wash your paws no it's their toilette they can they can hear rinse, it from a mile away rinse your fish fillet right and then and then and they never you know they would kind of savage them and leave them on the deck as it were it wasn't a wasn't the funnest job uh but yeah i mean they're wild animals you guys everybody come on Let's talk about um, some people that were beautiful, and we shall miss them. Um, uh, Rosanelle Eaton um, is swirled off into the heavens um, just today. In fact, I was reading Ari... uh, Berman? Yes, Ari Berman, uh, who's an activist and an all-around ride-on guy and was friends with um, Ms. Eaton. Uh, She's from North Carolina. And... um, here, let me read you a little bit about what she did. She fought for voting rights there. And as you know, North Carolina has been a cesspool of horror. Um, they had a, the strictest voting rights laws in the nation that their Supreme Court said targeted minorities with almost surgical precision. And that was the uh, ruling that was over. That was um, a ruling their, their Supreme Court made that undid that. Um, that was what the Reverend Dr. Barber was having moral Mondays over for years and years and years on the steps of the state house. Well, Miss Eaton. <clears throat> the granddaughter of a slave at the age of 21, she famously defied North Carolina's Jim Crow era bars to voting by people of color. In 1942, the 21-year-old Eaton took a two-hour mule ride to the Franklin County Courthouse in eastern North Carolina to register her vote. The three white male registrars told her to stand up straight with her arms at her side, look straight ahead, and recite the preamble to the Constitution from memory. After she did that word for word, they gave her a written literacy test, which she also passed. Eaton was one of the few blacks to pass the literacy test and make it under the voting rules in the Jim Crow era. Well, little lady, you did it, Roseanne often quoted the consternated uh, registrars grudgingly admitting. The Jim Crow era equivalent of nevertheless, she persisted. That and a good deal more. Um, 
toxic white male privilege and toxic racism um, is the hallmark of this country. Any voter ID law that you ever hear of being enacted, anytime you hear the word voter fraud, that is aimed directly at people of color. And it's aimed directly at women of color because women of color have changed the earth and changed the uh, scale of everything in the United States. There's nothing more important than protecting their voting rights. This is what black people were made to do. This is what they want black people to be made to do again. This is what Justice Roberts looked at the um, Voting Rights Act in 2013 said everything was changed and nothing now to be done anymore and that the playing field was level. Took things like this under into account and still went ahead and gutted the Voting Rights Act, which would have prevented all of these uh, voter ID laws. Uh, what happened in Georgia, uh, what happened in Florida, um, what's happening now in Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, what's happening in Missouri, what's happening all over with um, targeting minorities and trying to keep them from voting and keep the will of the people from being done. Um, there was also such a thing as poll tax, literacy tax. Poll tax meant black people had to pay to register to vote. A literacy test meant you had to know how to read and write. Um, this was aimed at uneducated people. Um, by the way, white people never had to take the literacy test. They were allowed to be illiterate. White people never had to pay the poll tax. They were allowed to be poor. Um, white people never had to recite the preamble to the Constitution. Do you think that Orange 45 or any of his cabinet or any of the Republican senators could recite the preamble <laughs> to the Constitution word for word? She had to do it in front of three white men who I assure you were not friendly to her in any way. She went on to become a lifelong voting rights activist, personally registering thousands of people of color in her corner of the state. She never once missed a voting in election. Those accomplishments would have made a noteworthy life, but she was only getting started. In 2015, having no birth certificate, she ran afoul of the brand new voter ID law. By the way, that was enacted after the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013 by the Roberts Court. Eaton undertook a Herculean effort to match her various documents and comply with the law. Over the course of a month, she made 11 trips to different state agencies, four to the DMV, four to two different Social Security offices, and three trips to different banks totaling 200 miles in 20 hours. It was really stressful and difficult, a headache and expensive, everything you could name. By the way, that was three years ago. She was in her 90s. She was 94 when she did all that. It was because she did not have um, a a birth certificate because she was born in rural North Carolina in the 20s. Unable to establish her identity to the satisfaction of the State Board of Elections, she faced the prospect of being denied her right to vote 73 hours after defending and exercising it. She joined a lawsuit against the state, becoming the lead plaintiff in North Carolina NAACV versus McCrory, in which the little lady did it yet again, convincing the U.S. Fourth, it wasn't the Supreme Court of North Carolina, I, I erred, it was the Fourth Circus Court. They overturned the state's voter ID law, and that was the sentence. It targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Um, I have any number of anecdotes I might add here, but my favorite was the one related to us by her daughter, Armenta. When the New York Carolina Supreme Court candidate and plaintiff's attorney in North Carolina NAACP versus McCrory, Anita Earls, who, by the way, is um, now uh, on the Supreme Court. There is a black woman on the North Carolina Supreme Court. And her name is Anita Earls, visited Rosen Allen in her Franklin County home. I tagged along photographing the visit as the campaign's digital director. In 2010, Armenda told us Obama invited Rosen to visit him in the White House. And Rosen respectfully declined, explaining, Obama's in the White House and he's doing a fine job. He doesn't need me bothering him. When her family pressed her to reconsider, she said, we have an election coming down here and I have to get folks to the polls. <laughs> Finally, she agreed to make the long trip to the White House to visit with the first black president after the election when she could spare the time. 
She died as she lived. She made death wait until after the election to receive her with honor. And she lived long enough to see Anita Earls elected the 100th Associate Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, one of the very few African-American women ever to serve on that court. It was a victory made possible in no small measure by the state's increasingly potent African-American vote to which Miss Rosenell gave birth and then nurtured for nearly a century. What an amazing hero she is. Um, uh, Olivia Hooker, another hero. Dr. Olivia Hooker. Um, This is from The Root. Uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921, she survived as a child and one of the first black women to join the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, according to the Spokesman Review, one of the last survivors of the 21 Tulsa Race Massacre. What was that? Um, in, 19, uh, in the teens, Tulsa had a thriving black population. It still does. Um, and they had a, it was a giant center of business and it was known as the Black Wall Street. And... Um, white people had had enough of it and they had a racist police chief and a racist mayor and basically a riot broke out and they destroyed the black community's holdings there, went house to house, took people's belongings and um, a bunch of people were violently killed. Um, No one was ever arrested. No charges were ever filed. It was a real dark moment in Oklahoma Mm -hmm. history and in American history. Charles Um, Blow was able to interview her this year about it. Really? Yes. 103. She was compass menace to the end. Um, One of the last survivors, she served as one of the final witnesses to the deadliest episode of racial violence in American history. The deadliest Mm -hmm. episode. Six years old when she hid under a table when a torch-carrying mob destroyed her family's Tulsa home. Black Wall Street descended into fire and chaos May 31st, 1921. You can look it up and you can read about it. Educate yourself. Um, the Tulsa Race Massacre, 300 black people died at the hands of white lynch mob. Thousands saw their businesses, properties, and livelihoods destroyed. A million dollars in damage at the time. By the way, 1921, there's no income tax. A million dollars would be the equivalent of, um, I would say, close to half a billion dollars now. Hooker referred to those horrifying 48 hours as the catastrophe. A group of black war veterans tried their best to protect her and others within their community. What does that mean? Oh, so Charles and Blow, is that on the New York Times? Mm-hmm. So you can look that up under... Eyewitness to the Desolation of Black Wall Street. Well, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from this, uh, but I will look at that one too and have a look at that later. Black War veterans means World War I um, veterans that served. That's who tried to protect um, the black community. We could see what they were doing. They thought everything was valuable. They smashed everything they couldn't take. My mother had an opera singer Enrico Caruso records she loved. They smashed the Caruso records. Of all the horrors she experienced during the massacre, one memory particularly haunted her for decades. My grandmother made me some beautiful clothes for my doll. It was the first ethnic doll we'd ever seen. She washed them and put them on the line. When the marauders came, the first thing they did was set fire to my doll's clothes. I thought that was dreadful. Her father owned a department store in Greenwood, otherwise known as Tulsa, Oklahoma's epicenter of black commerce, Black Wall Street. Thankfully, her family survived. It took me a long time to get over nine nightmares. I was keeping my family awake screaming. After relocating her mother and five siblings to Topeka temporarily, her father attempted to rebuild his business in Tulsa. He later became a public speaker touring Methodist churches and sharing the grisly details. Upon Hooker's return to Tulsa, she attended Booker T. Washington High School and joined the Delta Sigma Theta sorority in their efforts to integrate the military. When World War II came, the Navy had begun to enlist women. They wrote back and said there was a complication. They wouldn't tell me what the complication was. The complication was melanin. 
So instead, she enlisted in the Coast Guard in 45, which was three years after Congress passed a law approving the creation of the Coast Guard's Women's Reserve, which filled jobs vacated by men and went abroad to fight in the war. Under this decree, she became one of the first American, African-American women to join the Women's Reserve, and they were the spars, right? There was the waves in the Navy uh, and the wax in the Army. Uh, the, the, these are the old-time names for them. I'm just giving you the names from the 40s. They don't call them this anymore. And uh, the Coasties were uh, spars. She was stationed in Boston, and uh, then they disbanded the program in 46. She became a petty officer second class. She got a master's degree from Columbia, a PhD, a doctorate in psychology from University of Rochester, a senior clinical lecturer at Fordham. She retired in 85. The Coast Guard named a building in Staten Island after her in 2015. Even though it's usually for people who have passed away, they made an exception for her. The Coast Guard spokesman said she was a national treasure. She remained committed to the community of Tulsa, In 97, she joined the Tulsa Rate Riot Commission, which investigated the circumstances surrounding the massacre and issued a report in 2001, detailing for the first time, that's 80 years later, the extent of the city and state government involvement in the riot and the cover-up and the total lack of remedy available in the courts at the time. Amazing. Over 100 survivors and 300 descendants of those who either lost property or killed filed a civil rights lawsuit. But guess what? The Supreme Court dismissed the lawsuit without comment in 2005. Uh. She was honored by Barack Obama during a Coast Guard ceremony. He recounted her life story and called her a tireless voice for justice and equality. According to her goddaughter, Janice Porter, she passed in her home in White Plains, no surviving relatives. Her mind was clear. She was just tired. Um, You can read the article by Charles Blow about her in the New York Times. Um, You can also read Who Killed Black Wall Street, written by one of uh, the Roots founders, Henry Louis Gates Jr. What have you got there? Well, it was just uh, another detail from uh, Charles Blow's uh, interview. She told him that her mother uh, had a musket and she turned it on the men. She told she told me that her mother had been to Tuskegee Institute and that a boyfriend at the time was a militia man who had told her that women should learn self-defense. And she so she kept uh, her kids safe. It's extraordinary. No one ever teaches you about this incident. It's uh, kind of buried uh, in American history. I think because it's so shameful. Well, it's shocking that no one went to jail. It's up there with the draft riots um, uh, and during the Civil War when Irish people rioted in um, New York City. The holidays are the busiest time of the year, especially at the post office. That's why we use Stamps.com to save time during the hectic holiday season. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your desktop. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up. Print postage any day, any time. Stamps.com not only saves you time, it saves you money. Stamps.com helps you print the right amount of postage every time. Never overpay again. With all the time and money you'll save, Stamps.com is the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. I would use Stamps.com because it is awesome. Everybody here at Proofcast Acres uses it, which is the farm adjacent to the porpoise. And right now, you too can enjoy Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in SMARTEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter SMARTEST. I thank you, and the smartest man in the world podcast thanks you.
I'm going to read a little bit here about it, some more good news. It was from the New York Times. Jennifer, of course, sent me this too. Um, it's about the two women, Carolyn Kenyon and Judith Jones of Ithaca. They raised $12,500 and sent it to a debt forgiveness charity. Then they purchased a portfolio of a million and a half of medical debts on their behalf. Um, they began purchasing, um, it's a place called RIP Medical Debt. They purchased bundles of past due medical bills and then they forgive them to help those in need. They decided to start their own fundraising, camp fundraising campaign uh, to assist people with medical debt in New York. They raised $12,500 in Senate and then the uh, RIP Medical Debt purchased a million and a half in debt. Uh, Ms. Jones is 80 and Ms. Kenyon is 70. Ms. Jones is a retired chemist and Ms. Kenyon is a psychoanalyst and they belong to the Finger Lakes chapter of the Campaign for New York Health. Now, we just played Ithaca this year and it's a very intellectual part of the country. Um, Carl Sagan and Alex Haley are from there. There's a university there. Um, we played a lovely little theater there with no fucking air conditioning whatsoever. <laughs> and there's a bar on the corner that we were led to understand. Joan Baez had played there the yes. night before. She was drunk dancing on the bar in the, uh, uh, after her show, which made me right love down, her down the street. even more than I already loved her. <laughs> it's such a little hippie town of coffee shops and pizza places and grocery stores with, uh, you know, mung beans and whatnot. And an extraordinary amount of homeless people, a shocking bus uh, station area. Um, so it's a real American city. It was at once um, enlightened, liberal, intellectual, smart, hippie, and um, overrun with um, poverty and um, lack of privilege, as well as a lot of white privilege. I was really interested to see, because I hadn't been in Ithaca in about five, seven years. And the last time we stayed there, we stayed out of town, and this time mm -hmm. we stayed in town. So... We were kind of in the thick of it. Um, and we all walked around because it's an interesting place, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, sharing, caring, do-goody types live in Ithaca. And these two women are certainly that. But I wanted to, uh, I thought it was very exciting. 1,284 New Yorkers had their debts forgiven, live in 40 of the state's 62 counties from Westchester to Chautauqua. The sources of the debts were 130 hospitals and branches that provided medical services. Um, it's horrible that that people have medical bills like that, that that they can't get out from under. They go to collection agencies, and that's where they buy this debt from. It's crushing, um, and it's it's really a shocking statement. Part of what makes America so difficult to live in is that we all know that we're all one terrible, terrible health scare away from complete penury, because they literally will charge you as much as they possibly can to save your life. Well, and it also keeps people from getting preventative care because care is expensive. And then when the emergency room becomes the only option because you've let yourself go too long and you've got to go to the emergency room, that ups the prices everything because emergency room care is a costly and ineffective way of treating other things. Um, in any case, John Oliver talked about it in 2016. He did a segment on the show and he paid $60,000 to relieve $14.9 million in debts through the charity. Um, Altogether, the organization said its donations have forgiven 434 million in medical debt, assisting a quarter of a million people. But 750 billion dollars is due in past medical, um, past due in medical debt. Um, I'm going to give you the address if you want to um, jump in on this. I'm sure there's one in your neighborhood as well. Um, it's a really important thing. It's like cash bail. It's something that needs to be solved uh, in this country. The website is called ripmedicaldebt.org, R-I-P-Medical, which is M-E-D-I-C-A-L, 
D-E-B-T dot org. Um, you have the power to forgive millions in medical debt for pennies on the dollar. Um, right now, their number has, oh my goodness, they've abolished almost four and a half million, four hundred and a half million dollars. Um, it was a nice article, and I just wanted to read you guys something groovy this week about those two women heroes. And um, we have plenty of toxic male privilege to go around. And if I hear another white guy give another excuse why they're a predator or why they're a corrupt venal bag of yuck, I, I think I shall pass. Um, it's so nice to read about two women who spent their mm-hmm. time raising money to erase people's medical debt. Speaking of white guys, that might be nice. Um, California has um, elected a full slate of Democrats. I don't know how many are really left in the legislature. It's a minority. We have a super majority in the assembly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we have a super majority in the Senate as well. Um, the state house is completely democratic. Yes. The treasurer, secretary of state, the governor, the lieutenant governor. Um, also, Oregon and Washington are in the same boat. And I think Nevada as well. And New Mexico. Um, also, the eastern seaboard between Maine and New York is almost utterly Democrat, I believe. And the last, uh, I can't remember if it's the 21st, the Kern County representative, mm. was that vote was just, it was finally uh, tallied, and it goes to a Democrat, which I think might be the first time out there. Kern County is tough. Uh, the, where we're playing in Oroville is definitely a red county in California. Um, Orange County went completely blue. Mm -hmm. Um, Kern County went blue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where you stumped out in the desert, the high desert, as we call it out here, Palmdale, uh, uh, Lancaster, Palmdale, uh, Simi Valley. Not only did they go blue, they voted for a woman. A bisexual community activist named Katie. (laughs) Uh, So Kanye Levia, Connie Levia, is a state senator. Uh, she reintroduced a bill uh, to require public universities in California to offer the abortion pill on campus. For some reason, our former governor, Governor Brown, vetoed the measure in September. No one could figure out why. Jennifer surmised uh, possibly a remnant of his Jesuit upbringing, although he always purported to be a women's rights activist. Certainly his sister was a treasurer of the state of California, and he was supporter of her. Uh, Should the California legislature pass, quote, the College Student Right to Access Act and Governor-elect Newsom sign the measure into law, health centers at UC and state universities, that's the UC system uh, and uh, the the Cal State University system, which Jennifer and I attended, uh, will offer students medication or abortion starting in 2023. Medication abortion safely terminates pregnancies up to 10 weeks when two pills, I'm going to mispronounce this horribly, Mephestoprone and Mesostoprostol. Oh, God. Mm, no. no, I didn't get either of them right. <laughs> They're complex Greek compound words. But it's about time. These are for young women who are at college. Um, anyone who's at college. Well, anyone who's at college. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Governor Brown shot this one down, and no one could really figure out why. There was no logical reason that the UC system and that um, the university system shouldn't give out these pills at their medical centers. If we'd had this when we were in college, it would have, um, ripped, to use a phrase that you hate, really changed the old ball game. Um, it re- would have made things less frightening for well, people, you, you wouldn't less have complicated. A, uh, yeah. You wouldn't have to get a clinical abortion. No. You wouldn't have to worry about the, the funding, the timing. They're medication abortions. Yeah. It's way different than having to go in and get a procedure. It's just taking two pills. 
Um, I mean, that's not easy. Or, you know, I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying it's a different bag. Uh, it's a different procedure. Regardless of where they live, all Californians should have access to full range and choice of reproductive care services so they can plan their futures and accomplish goals. That's what Senator Levia said. I'm confident, uh, Leva, I'm confident that incoming legislature will approve SB 24. And um, the unprecedented legislation was dreamed up by a group of students who wanted Cal, Berkeley, to provide comprehensive health, health services. But Dean Brown thought it was uncalled for. Um, he said it wasn't necessary. Well, let's skip by him and go to this part where Gavin Newsom said he liked the idea. And he said on the campaign trail, I would have supported that. I've long supported that. He told the Chronicle, I subscribe to Planned Parenthood and NARAL's position on that. Dang. So uh, I wanted to read you that good news. And hopefully that means t- literally tens of thousands. It's 2018. Yeah. Let's just move on into the future and make people's lives a little, a little easier. Yeah. Tens of thousands of women in the uh, university system in California uh, will have that, uh, be, have that, uh, be, av- be able to avail themselves uh, of the pills that Greg can't pronounce because he's older and white. Uh, what do you do? You want to talk about Paris or Herbert Walker, or what sure. do we want to jump into here? We, we haven't even got to Orange Forty Five and the, the the largest criminal act in the history of the presidency and possibly oh the history God. of the United States, and how the newspapers are downplaying it, and how Meet the Press isn't using it as their top story, and how people aren't screaming it from the rooftops. What we've known for the last three years that the president is a traitor with Russia, and that he ordered his personal attorney mm-hmm. to make payments to tamper with the election, and that he's violated every conceivable election law and. And if you think I'm over-exaggerating, I'm not. No. We know for a fact that Harry Weed went to James Comey in 2016 and said, why won't you release the uh, information that the FBI knows that the Russians are tampering with the election? We know for a fact that Hillary Clinton said before the election that he was a Russian tool, that the Russians were using him, and that if he was elected, he would compromise us, and that 17 intelligence, different intelligence agencies said so. We know that the New York Times spiked the article they were going Mm -hmm. to run on him being controlled by the Russians and having uh, peddled influence to them, and instead ran the email story uh, 11 days before the election. We know these things as incontrovertible facts. I didn't make them up. I don't live in a van, and I don't um, think Bigfoot attacked me with a tinfoil hat or whatever. These are facts that came from facts that are facts that are uh, immutable. You're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. We know for a fact that Paul Manafort has repeatedly lied to the special counsel's office. We know that because of that, he may even be retried in the D.C. court. Mm -hmm. We know that Paul Manafort, because he lied during the process whereby he had waived his right to attorney, the reason after the giving up $50 million worth of assets and the five buildings and all that and his bank account and his insurance policy, that he's in even bigger trouble than he was before. Mm-hmm. As you once said about Brexit, it would have been better if they'd never did it to begin with. He should have never copped the plea bargain because now he's really not, he's up against it. There's nowhere to go. Cohn, now we know lied and now we know Cohn's going to get the book thrown at him. Because the Southern District of New York um, has those awesome um, four lawyers who are all under 40. Who, by the way, the fellow that replaced um, uh, Preet Bahara, mm-hmm. who was removed from the post at the head of the Southern District of New York, is a Republican and was appointed by Trump. So this whole angry Democrat <laughs> thing, he's actually just doing his job. Right, which is shocking right now. Anybody standing up for what's, I think what's been such a thrill the last two weeks with Flynn, Manafort, Cohn, uh, and of course now uh, Giancarlo the pool boy, is to find out that 
the justice system's holding together, however well, much we think it's not. And uh, we're finding out what really happened. Yeah. I think a lot of people are in denial because it's, it is all so horrible. It's everything we thought was true, but to see it revealed... There's a whole other ghastly chapter. You mm-hmm. can't, you know, take it all in that this has actually happened. The and amount- that the uh, the person that should be president, the most qualified person, is is uh, someone that is still not... She should be on TV every day. Huh. Um, uh, it's such a travesty that she's not allowed to come forward or to be to be given some measure of um courtesy or uh if if she were a man mm-hmm. and this had happened to a, a male presidential candidate i can't imagine the outcry right since this was done but she's to told, her she's told to go away uh-huh another why wasn't she on all of the sunday talking head shows today talking about this well, uh, since, recent because information overload, especially since she warned us all about what was happening—that mm-hmm. he was a puppet of mm-hmm. Putin. She said it in no uncertain terms, and she yes. cited the agencies. Yes, and he screamed at the top of his voice during the debate: "No puppet, no puppet! You're the puppet!" And a lot of um, news media gathering organizations were perfectly fine to keep that going because. Everything's a horse race. Everything is both siderism. Everything is white guys get the benefit of the doubt. If this had happened to Mitt Romney, if this had happened to John Kerry, we would never hear stop hearing about it till the end. If it had happened to 45. You remember before the election, he said, if I lose, the, the, the election's corrupt and that there's no way that I lose. Cause, and he basically set it up the way it went down. The election was completely corrupt corrupted we know now a million different things from cambridge analytica and steve bannon to the shaving to the suppression to now actual um cabaling with the russians Mm -hmm. to everything in the steel dossier literally everything in the steel dossier being a fact a fact yeah he didn't exaggerate at all he reported what he knew um we also know that james comey was how shall we say uh creative with um, what he decided to report and what he decided not mm-hmm. to pursue, mm-hmm. and that his misogyny and yep. his uh, um, lack of forbearance, um, that we might have been better off if Mueller had been head of the FBI then, and not him, because Mueller might not have done that. Mueller might have pulled the plug on the whole thing. We also know that Mitch McConnell refused, refused the president mm-hmm. um, the courtesy of uh, acknowledging that Russia was tampering with the election, that Obama came to him, before the election and said, Senator, I'm aware that the Russians are all up in this and we've mm-hmm. got to do something. And McConnell said, if you bring this to light, I will make a shitstorm out of this and say the Democrats are pushing this narrative. He was relying on racism and the GOP sticking together no matter how infernal the result. Yeah. Well, the whole um, thing that I, I think that points to the media never, ever, ever, ever granting Hillary or black people a break, women a break, or people of color a break, is at 1.45 tweeted this week, what was it, I'm totally cleared or whatever, this totally clears me with exclamation Mm -hmm. points Mm -hmm. and caps. And two or three different news agencies ran that as a story. 
They wrote, President clears himself on Twitter. And it's like, that's not a story. It's like, you said, what did you say yesterday? I like donuts or whatever. Like, you, it's just made up stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I can come down the street and go, I'm a wizard. Mm-hmm. And the headline shouldn't be, Greg Proops, wizard according to Greg Proops. The headline should be, delusional comic, <laughs> high on junk, <laughs> screaming, r- ranting obscenities, and in a state of altered you know, consciousness. No, and it's extremely important right now how things are presented in the media. And they're not showing any kind of responsible behavior. It, it's, it's kind of, it, it's, we're down to it right now. This is a real important... We need to preserve democracy. No. Very important time. Uh, because the evidence, as you, as you point out, is now it's laid out. Um, the Cohen indictment, all 30 extraordinary pages of it, um, is real specific about the felonies that individual one, 45, is absolutely on the hook for. The whole, I didn't know that you couldn't violate campaign laws defense is pretty crappy. <laughs> I don't see any good lawyer letting that one slide. I, yes, that will be his defense because their defense is always, I didn't know anything, even though they, he's only the best people. Um, it's real important right now that um, full court press uh, by the Democrats to make sure that um, the right thing is done. And for you, um, my darling listeners and kittens, um, I'm always urging you to write all your Congress people and Senate people. Rand Paul from Kentucky went on TV today and um, did a, a vacillating salamander dance where he said that the problem was that um, federal election laws are too tight. And that um, so. Oh, that's it. No, yeah, no. See, the problem isn't that uh, individual one conspired and ordered his personal attorney to violate the laws by bribery and graft and corruption and was even paid a bonus for paying off women during an election to keep that out of the papers so that it wouldn't hurt his chances of winning the rigged election that he'd already conspired to meet with the Russians over the ways and means of throwing the election, which we also know has happened. Um, the problem is... We also is, know there's no reason he can't be indicted except for the Republican Party. The only reason he can't be indicted is that the media wants to run this narrative that the president can't be indicted. Mm-hmm. It's only because no one's ever done it before. Right. But as you said to me today earlier, anything can happen at any time. When we were kids, we never thought Nixon would get run down. It mm-hmm. took a long time mm-hmm. from beginning to end, from the time the shit hit the fan and we found out what he did, which was have operatives paid by the Republican National Committee burglarize the Democratic headquarters, steal a bunch of shit. Mind you, they didn't do a great job of it. No, they did not. They got caught by the security guard. The black security guard. And it's a salient that he was a black person because he was honest Mm -hmm. and he caught them at their job. They'd hired a bunch of Cubans who were working as stringers that uh, uh, his hatchet guys had hired. And and then, of course, uh, as the the screenwriter... um, William Goldman said, follow the money. As we went back up the ladder, we found out that Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Dean, uh, the low-level guys like Colson and all that, and Liddy, who were, you know, those are frontline mm-hmm. marine monkeys. But the, the, the higher you got into this chief of staff, uh, attorney general, um, by the way, the attorney general resigned and did time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the vice president resigned for corruption. The president resigned his office and had to be pardoned by the vice president he appointed so that he wouldn't go to jail. Nixon (laughs) resigned so that he wouldn't face charges, you guys. None of that had happened before. So this whole idea that you can indict him, you can do a lot of things. For instance, um, 
this cat, I'm not going to go into great deals on, details on this, but what, what happened in North Carolina with the vote shaving and, and, and the uh, absentee balance and, and this cat winning by 900 votes, and they found out now, of course, that they were dumping mm-hmm. the ballots and paying people to do it. Over 1,000 votes. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi said the other day, she's speaker now. And when we, re, when we you know, reconvene in January in a month's short time from today, one month's short time when we reconvene this Democratic Congress, she said... Um, I wouldn't worry about it because no matter what happens, we can refuse to seat him. And Thank that's you. a solution. Like mm-hmm. they're going to have another election. The state board meets on the 12th and then it, it disbands on the 21st or something. And they've got, they've concocted it. So there's four Democrats and I don't want to go into the whole bloody details, but they can't call for a complete reelection. They can only call for this election to be held again. The one that got queered because we know for a fact that a convicted felon was paying women to go around and steal ballots. And this is vote uh, uh, suppression and tampering. It's not voter fraud. Voter fraud is when someone pretends to be someone else and uses their name to vote twice. It's never happened. It's only happened 10 times in like 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's a non-existent crime. The one that the voter ID law in North Carolina is supposed to stop. The one that the voter ID law in Texas was supposed to stop. The one that the voter ID, blah, blah, blah. What really happens is Republicans do things like strip people from the voter rolls, like what happened in Georgia, um, jerry-rig the counts like they did in Michigan and Wisconsin, which and Northern and Virginia, which have finally tried to get their districts back to not being gerrymandered. Moving the polling place outside of Dodge. Which they did in Kansas in the last election. Um, stripping uh, every black man from that's ever committed a crime from uh, the... Regist- uh, the voter registry like they did in Florida and although have been, uh, a lot of black men have been reinstated in the state of Florida these are the things they do because they can't win without cheating and they can't win because they don't have a majority and they know this so where are we now uh, are they going to impeach difficult to say sir um, are the Republicans going to do anything no I think they're going to hold on to the bitter bloody end although I see a, a, a shape shifting rebranding mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. we also know for a fact today that uh, due to the New York Times that uh, Jared Kushner is um, mateys with um, Prince Salman, who I refuse to call uh, MBS, and has been manipulated by him for the money and the fame and the power. And it's quite likely that everyone in this Gambino crime family might face a very real indictment soon. And if you think that that can't happen, did you think that the National Security Advisor would, as Charles Pierce beautifully put it this week, sing the entire score to Parsifal <laughs> to the special counsel. He sang the entire Wagnerian <laughs> opera so well and so beautifully and so richly crafted note for note that he will face no time in prison. Michael Flynn was, after they found out, he was already squealing to the Russians and was completely compromised, which they knew before. As you recall, I believe it was Obama who said directly to 45 before they put the cabinet together, don't pick Mike Flynn. Mm-hmm. If you're going to not pick mm-hmm. someone, mm-hmm. General Flynn is so hot potato that he's never going to make it through the first month. And 45, because he didn't listen to anyone. Well, and the general public, ever since we saw that photo of Flynn at the dinner table with Putin and Jill Stein. Mm-hmm. Huh. At the banquet, yeah. at the RT banquet where he got uh-huh. up and spoke. Uh-huh. Uh, Flynn uh, was in the, at the job 18 days past the time when we knew he was completely compromised. So he's told the special counsel's office so much that unlike Cohn and unlike Manafort and unlike Papadopoulos, who just finished his 12 days in the stir, um, isn't going to go to jail. But what did he do in order to not go to jail? This has all been forgotten in the light of what's happened in the last week. Mm -hmm. Um, He told him everything, which means 
all the meetings with the Russians, all the back channel money with the Russians. So let me put it this way. Goods are there. Yes. And Don Jr. and Jared and the Trump Tower meetings. There's receipts. Oh, yeah. There's receipts. There's pictures. He's a general. And unlike 45 and his Scambino crime family, unlike Cohen, my assumption is, and this is just an assumption on my part, but I think I'm right. He kept books. He kept a diary. And his phone and his uh, records are, I'm assuming, uh, a little more intensive than, say, 45s, which I think is largely <laughs> like, you know, go to bathroom, play golf, get up, go to bed, the kind of notes you used to write to yourself when you were nine. Um, he, I think, was pretty anxious to get that money in so much as he was tempted at one point to kidnap a Turkish official and mm-hmm. f- for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was contemplated out, out loud in public on paper. So my guess is the amount and volume of information that he's laid on the special counsel is enough to put everyone in jail till the end of bloody time. And that Manafort's lied about all the same things because Manafort left before him, as you recall. Mm-hmm. Um, he's lied about the same things, but he was the key to, or a key to making the Russia thing happen for them, uh, the witch hunt, and uh, also instrumental in choosing Pence, which to me means Pence isn't off the table either. And Pence's uh, chief of staff, Nick Ayers, just today turned down the position with Trump. To be national security advisor, to replace John Kelly, who, by the way, was a destabilizing influence. No, not... I mean, uh, uh, chief of staff. Chief of staff. Chief of staff, um, like Al Haig. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't a stabilizing influence. He wasn't the adult in the room. Yes, he often covered his face in disgust. Yes, he thought Trump was stupid. We all think that. Um, he said Robert E. Lee made concessions before the war and that Robert E. Lee was a wonderful guy kind of pressed into a bad situation. Robert E. Lee was a mm-hmm. slave owner who was particularly abusive toward his slaves and particularly the runaway ones. And um, they met with no mercy when they ran away from Robert E. Lee's plantation. Secondly... He was one of the most distinguished officers in American history to graduate from West Point, the top of his class, and probably one of the best officers the United States has ever manufactured. He chose, at the beginning of the war, to join the side of slavery. He chose that. The American government, the federal government, asked Robert E. Lee to command the Army of the Potomac, and he chose to command the Army of Virginia. That was his choice. Well, so, much like Kelly was uh, reveling in white supremacy. Yeah. And the, and the cruelty. So, to me, I, I, good riddance to Kelly. Um, he was horrible to Frederica Wilson. He was horrible uh, to black people in general. He was couldn't wait to give the orders to uh, use lethal force. He couldn't wait to uh, whip up uh, that frenzy before the election about the migrant caravan. Um, mm-hmm. He's a straight-up white supremacist, in my opinion, and uh, I don't think it's a big, great loss. And Ayers is just... Ayers is wrapping himself in the flag before he splits. He's, he's going to try to get a consulting job or something. I think some of them see the writing on the wall and that mm-hmm. they've got to save themselves. They've got to, they need their fat consulting jobs. They have to be able to speak at universities and right-wing think tanks for the end of time. And they know that there's a life after this, they hope. It's also toxic. And if you don't think that men write all the rules, um, here's a win for this week. Uh, the horrible man who... Um, was in Charlottesville and uh, killed Miss Hire with the car. 
uh, got first-degree murder in the court in Virginia, a white nationalist, as they call him. The prosecutor told the jury that he was angry after witnessing violent clashes. Heather Heyer was a 32-year-old paralegal and civil rights activist. Three dozen others were injured. Um, the trial featured emotional testimony from survivors who described devastating injuries and complicated recoveries. The far-right rally had been organized to protest the planned removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. <clears throat> Hundreds of Ku Klux Klan members, neo-Nazis, and other nationalists, emboldened by the election of President Donald Trump. By the way, I'm reading from Politico, which is not a left-wing rag. <laughs> uh, and then he said both sides were to blame, if you recall. And there were many fine people on both sides. Anyway, that man got first-degree murder. Not manslaughter, not vehicular manslaughter, not second-degree. First-degree, that means premeditated. So let's talk about Herbert for a second, then we'll go back to toxic white male privilege. Isn't that the same thing? Yes. Well, Herbert, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush passed this week, and they had a giant state funeral for him. And um, in light of uh, how things look now, and in the caustic glare of uh, Orange Julius Caesar and his erratic behavior and his debilitating emotional state and his inability to... Um, even feign empathy or human emotion. His behavior at the funeral, his behavior at the casket, him handing his coat to the Marine like it was a coat check, him rocking back and forth, him closing his eyes, him dozing off during the service, him not knowing the elegy to the apostles, him not singing along to the hymns, his childishness, his horror, made Herbert Walker, who was a grown-up man, seem like a paragon of statesmanship and virtue. Uh, by dint of the fact that George Herbert Walker, um, from the age of 18, accepted responsibility, uh, joined... Yeah, youngest Navy pilot, right? Yeah, he was 18, was he not? Teen teenage Navy pilot, um, from a wealthy family and a son of privilege, went to Yale, um, then a lifelong functionary in the Republican Party, held every single post you could possibly hold, uh, ran for Congress, failed, shifted to the right more head of the CIA for one year in that interim year in between the last year, Ford, and right before Carter. And then Carter came in and cleaned out the CIA, which was quite dirty at that point, and they'd been funneling a lot of money. Then got back into office with Reagan during that um, <clears throat> October surprise uh, when uh, uh, the hostages rescue mission failed in Iran. Um, kind of one of the architects of the inconceivable disaster that is Central America, and so much as the reason why we have migrant caravans coming from Honduras and these other countries is not since really the 40s with the Rockefellers was the policy in Central America so violently pursued as it was under the Reagan and Bush administrations, culminating with uh, the deposing of Manuel Noriega uh, toward the end of uh, Herbert Walker's term. Um, someone he'd been on very intimate and friendly terms with up till then and had funneled quite a lot of money through Panama to him. Um, they were desperate that the Contras, uh, who were the rebels in Nicaragua, be stuffed by the right-wing uh, forces of Central America. And so right-wing forces were set loose and well-funded, given privy to information, uh, given um, uh, missions were flown, uh, selling cocaine, providing arms. Um, they were given a, a security clearance. They, they were allowed to burn down villages and kill lots of people, including famously nuns. And... Uh, uh, Herbert had a lot to do with that. And then, as Contragate wound down and uh, it became an inconceivably huge scandal, the first two years of it were conducted semi-legally, and then the Bolin Amendment passed, 
Congress, which said that you can't do the kind of things they were trying to do, which was basically fund an illegal war in a foreign country. And then that's what undid them in the second term. Then everyone had to testify. Bill Casey, who was head of the CIA then, um, they put him in the hospital and took his brain out and then blamed the whole thing on him and made him the architect. And Herbert basically kind of exonerated everyone he could, although let's several dozen people, I'd say 20 or 30, went to jail for that, including Oliver North, who later went on to have a fine career as a talk show host. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they were as about a corrupt a crew as ever walked through the White House, let's be honest, Reagan's crew. And Herbert was vice president, so he was in the cabinet. The whole time, and one chicken bone away from the presidency, as they say. Then um, he was in, you know, played one term as president. Um, when he ran against Mike Dukakis, Lee Atwater was his campaign manager, and Lee Atwater is one of the architects of the Southern strategy. And the Southern strategy mm. is when you say, to put it in a nutshell, we won't use the word N bomb. We won't use overt racist terminology. Instead, we'll couch things like urban. So, William Horton was a black man who was in prison who had been released. He never went by Willie. I don't know who thought up Willie, as a matter of fact. Probably Lee Atwater, for all we know. They started running an ad that showed a revolving door coming out of a prison and black people coming out of that door. And I believe it was Lee Atwater who said, by the time we finish with this, they're going to think that Willie Horton is Michael Dukakis' running mate. And the thrust and the theme of uh, the ad campaign was that if you elect Michael Dukakis as president, black men are going to come out of jail and come to your house and kill you. Mm-hmm. And uh, Herbert Walker signed off on it. It wasn't like him because he wasn't that kind of guy. He didn't play oh, he didn't play hardball rough the way the other boys played. He wasn't Reagan-y that way. Um, but he was drawn into it and he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, was he... Uh, uh, I, I can't make value judgments like was he a good person and stuff like that. He was a company man. So... When you're a vice president, when you're a president, when you're head of the CIA, when you're a senator, when you're head of the RNC, when the RNC was wildly unpopular, when you're ambassador to China, you know where all the bodies are buried. He went to work every day and he did his job. And I think he studied and he read. I don't think he was the worst diplomat that ever lived. I don't think it was necessary to beat up Central America the way we did. And I don't think it was necessary to invade Iraq. He was uh, vice president and president during the AIDS crisis and ignored it. ACT UP was founded in 1987. They protested in his hometown in Kennebunkport just to get him to acknowledge what was going on. He ignored it. Pretty late in the day. Yeah, as much as he could. At the end of his term, they started to fund it slightly. Him and Reagan went out of their way to let everyone, Jennifer and I know in San Francisco, um, they were happy to let them all die, basically. Uh, they thought it was a gay thing. Their homophobia overrode any sense of humanity. So as far as canonizing him, did he have good qualities? Um, yeah, sure. He didn't yell and scream. Um, he didn't self-aggrandize like other people we know. Um, he ignored the AIDS crisis. He fomented war in the Middle East. Um, that led us to the destabilization that we have now. He fomented war in Central America. Um, a million people died um, in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president during the um, blockade and the you know no-fly zone and all that. And then the second war that was prosecuted by his son. He also replaced Thurgood Marshall on the court with Clarence Thomas, tried to put Robert Bork on the court, and um, gave us W. 
So I don't know that I'd give him as big a report card as everyone else has given him. Mm, no. I'd say he was a kind of a nasty character at the end of the day. Um, was he polite? I suppose so, as far as presidents go. He also groped women and was noted in, into his 70s groping a teenage girl at an event. And she said, I was 16, and he grabbed my butt. And what could I say? Because he was president and no one would believe me. So there was that element to him as well. Um, am I speaking ill of the dead? Am I being out of line? I don't think so. I think you have to, uh, as Shakespeare said, the good that men do is often turred with their bones. Like I said, he showed up for work every day and he studied, which was more than Reagan did, which was more than W did. W was led around by the nose by Rumsfeld and Cheney. Know this, Cheney was Herbert Walker's Secretary of Defense. He orchestrated the invasion of Iraq, the first one. And they tried to make it sound legal by getting all the other countries to sign off. The second one, they didn't even bother to make it legal, if you recall. They just mm -hmm. did it. They thought it up and did it. The first one, they got 16, 70 countries to sign off. We had all countries from Europe, Middle East. Everybody signed off on it. We all went together. And bombed the living daylights out of a country that we had supported with more money than you could possibly imagine uh, over the years. It was a complete turnabout for them. I think they were kind of shocked that we turned on them that way. And under the pretense of saving Kuwait, mm -hmm. which is next to Saudi, probably one of the more despotic kingships uh, in uh, the entire Middle East. And really, it was a lot of nonsense, trumped up nonsense. So, uh, I don't know. Not one of my favorites. Uh, and certainly... His ignorance of AIDS until he read that Magic Johnson had HIV is uh, an inexcusable part of his inhumanity. In any case, uh, we had to uh, go through the whole process with the funeral this week. Uh, and Jamel Hill wrote a, uh, who's an awesome sports writer who used to be at ESPN. Uh, Jamel Hill wrote a, a really nice piece uh, where she said she wished it. Sometimes I wish this was in the Atlantic. Sometimes I wish the Obamas wouldn't go high. They were gracious to the Trumps. They had to be. Uh, the Obamas didn't just go low when they interacted with the Trumps because that's just not how they operate. It's not like I expected anything different at a state funeral. President Obama has always exhibited a maddening allegiance to institutional respect, even if it wasn't returned. All too often it wasn't. It was infuriating to see the Obamas graciously engage with the man who spent years vociferously promoting the racist conspiracy theory that the former president is a Muslim who wasn't born in the United States. Also recall that Donald Trump repeatedly challenged Obama to produce his college admission records because it wasn't enough for Trump to try to invalidate Obama's presidency. He had to question Obama's intellect. He was rewarded with the presidency for his ugliness. And as president, he's often given special credit for behaving like an adult, as he was at the state funeral. In a recently released book, Becoming, Michelle Obama writes, she'll never forgive Trump for spreading the birther conspiracy. But the Obamas didn't have the luxury of treating Trump the way, for instance, Hillary Clinton did. She looked like she'd have rather sawed off her arm than acknowledge the Trumps. Considering that Trump is still calling for Clinton to be investigated, the cold reception was predictable and warranted. But had the Obamas behaved like Clinton, they would have been accused of grandstanding and dividing the country. Or pundits would have said they lacked grace and decency. A video clip of two black people showcasing visible anger toward the president would have been played over and over again on cable news. Most black people have been told practically since the womb they must be twice as good to get half as much as anybody white. They've also been conditioned to believe that maintaining the moral high ground and being a bigger person is the only way to defeat racism. That often means suppressing natural human emotions that could communicate racism's devastating impact. Uh, 
one of the many burdens of racism is a piece of uh, people of color. It's ridiculously one-sided. Only one side is expected to show compassion. Only one side must practice restraint. Only one side's pressured into forgiveness. It's bad enough having to stomach being wrong. It's downright shameful being stuck with the responsibility of also making it right. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really well put by her. Yes, W gave her a piece of candy. Yes, oh. he's a human being. He's I trying get to it. continue that photo op. Just well, being near Michelle Obama to give him some kind of positive spin right all of a sudden it makes him human because we know that he tried to destroy the world (laughs) with his greed and the economic literally the economy of the world tanked under him and he left under a cloud you may recall it as inauguration and if you don't i'll remind you people were chanting na 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 hey hey goodbye and he was being booed at Obama's first inauguration. Mm-hmm. Um, Ob- Cheney was polling at about 12% at that point. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Paris, Jennifer. What's going on there? Well, there have been, uh, this was the fourth weekend of protests uh, in Paris, by mainly by people living uh, outside of Paris, not in the, in the suburbs, but further afield. Originally, it was a protest about tax on uh, diesel fuel. Um, then it sort of attracted uh, dis- disgruntled groups, uh, almost all men. Um, and the thing, uh, I've been following John Litchfield, who's a veteran journalist who lives in Paris, and he wrote a piece uh, a couple of days ago where he said, detestation of Macron was the only thing that the protesters had in common. Um, So it's not about fuel. uh, The movement ceased to be a quote-unquote normal social protest long ago. Many peaceful gilets jaunes, their apocalyptic ambitions stoked by social media and their fury overheated by fake news believe that they can overthrow representative democratic structures. They want to expel not only Macron but the whole of the French political class. So, uh, <laughs> now are the Russians interfering in this as well? I keep reading. Yes, according to another journal- journalist, Agnès Poirier, she says Russia today is fomenting violence. Uh, wow. There's Facebook sites as well. There's anti-Semitic uh, Facebook posts for the the uh, yellow vest protesters. Uh-huh. So Nazism always rears its head. Uh huh. And um, one thing that I wanted to emphasize is that yesterday uh, was a full day of, of protests by these, this group, but there was also a march for the environment in Paris with a diverse crowd with far more women. The, uh, the other protest was almost all men and white men, so white the- young men. The people who work and have to clean up all the mess and uh, and the, the disruption of families and children being able to enjoy the center of Paris mm-hmm. uh, during these holiday weekends, white keep, guys are just smashing stuff up. Is that what I'm to understand here? Well, there, there was a small group of, of really violent people, and they had to close the museums and the schools, and uh, I think people were afraid to go out. And uh, as you know, the center of Paris is is a pretty diverse group. I mean, yes, it is a, a very posh area, but uh, Paris and its arrondissements are it's a multicultural city. 
and uh, these were roving groups of guys uh, taking advantage of the situation, burning cars, smashing windows, that kind of thing. So nothing constructive, really. No, that's not how you go about uh, making change, political change, I don't think. Well, I think when you're... It seems like a privileged white guy way of demonstrating it because you're not the one who's going to clean that up. That's right. going to be immigrants who right. work They're in the center of Paris. They're going to leave. Yeah, yes. And also, when it devolves from we want the government to change to Macron as president of the Jews, then that's when, to me, we're talking about Russia here. Mm-hmm. There any- was a line about him being... Uh, allied with the uh, Rothschild that's bankers. That's World War II. That's, uh-huh. that's 1930s. Uh-huh. I mean, this is right out of the Stalin. Yeah. One thing that Russia, this Russian government is always about is being Nazi-like in their anti-Semitism. They want to make sure everybody knows that one. It's what's going on in Hungary. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know... Bad news bears. Mm-hmm. The KKK in this country... Uh, we had a synagogue shooting a less than a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this whole, when you start saying Rothschild, see me, uh, what's his name? Crazy uh, Louis Gomert was on TV saying Soros wasn't a Jew the other day. He's right. in, he's in, you know, he's a sitting congressperson. Mm-hmm. It's, this is no, it's crazy it's Nazi stuff. Evil. Yeah, it's Nazi stuff. I don't. Well, it's 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 horrible to hear that. We love France because. They really do protest over everything. And a lot of times it's unions. Uh, They pay enormous taxes in France. They also have unbelievably good education. Their healthcare system is really decent. Um, In Paris, uh, the streets are reasonably clean. They get mail three times a day. They have all these services. That's what you can get if you tax the devil out of people. I've had... uh a doctor visit me at a friend's place right. in Paris. For, and it was a small It was little... $25. Yeah. And uh, I had to have antibiotics. And uh, yeah, I, and I, we've had a friend who is quite ill in Paris and her care was all covered. No, they, they, they it, it, what you get is, and it's, we're and not that's talking... why they have high ta- taxes. Right. But uh, the, yeah, well, uh, we that's don't have time to, works. <laughs> yeah, we don't have time to solve the whole thing, but it's really depressing to see that. A couple of things about um, male privilege, and then we're going to shove off into this good night. There was a very good article in the Washington Post, and I'm going to point you toward it, by Jillian Thomas. She writes, um, she's with the ACLU Women's Rights Project, and she wrote a book called Because of Sex, One Law, Ten Cases in 50 Years that Changed Americans and Women's Lives at Work. She wrote a column called Me Too Hasn't Fixed the Workplace. Here's a playbook that can, and she gives many good examples, and one of them is the pocketbook, um, basically uh, boycotting places. Uh, that support um, misogyny and uh, men taking advantage of women, i.e. Um, CBS had Charlie Rose, the, uh, uh, like blanking on the name of the Don Hewitt at uh, 60 Minutes, and of course, uh, Les Moonves, who ran the network forever. This is an item from three days ago from the Reuters news service. Les Moonves, who resigned as a top executive of CBS Corp in September amid wave of claims of sexual misconduct, destroyed evidence and misled an internal investigation, the New York Times reported on Tuesday. We also found out now that he had four different women who were there to do things to him uh, sexually and um, uh, that he denied a woman uh, wasn't maternity leave at the same time as all that happening. Um, his case is really revolting. And uh, to me, it's like jail time. 
I don't understand why. He's not going to get his golden parachute now, I don't think. Well, and it's all the culture, the people that he promoted and the kinds of shows that, that he crushed shows with strong female leads. Absolutely. because and women showrunners were not going to get a look in. No. To him, women had one job, basically, and that was to make sure they, he was a sexual, uh, sexually attractive and that he could dominate them and, and destroy their... Well, it's about power, isn't it? Yeah. Um, speaking of which, um, we've all heard about Mr. Jeffrey Epstein and the terrible, terrible, lenient uh, sentence that he got that was engineered by Alexander Acosta, the Secretary of Labor. Well, the good news is this story is not going away. It was written and uh, researched by Julie K. Brown at the Miami Herald. Her name is Julie K. Brown. The first article is called Perversion of Justice, How a Future Trump Cabinet Member Gave a Serial Sex Abuser the Deal of a Lifetime. There are interviews with over 50 women in this article. Yeah, she did tremendous work. Well, let's, I mean, t- let's talk, talk about some of the things that some of the women in it say that for a fact they had sex with people when they were underage. Um, Prince Andrew... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, Alan Dershowitz, whatnot, and as we've discussed on the show, if you're under eighteen, the only people you should be having any kind of uh, amorous intentions with are other people under eighteen. There is no this is excusing all, it. This has all come to light uh, this week, also because the current labor secretary. Secretary of Labor, is uh, Alexander Acosta, who brokered the deal to have uh, Epstein basically, was it 13 months in, mm-hmm. a, in a cushy In county jail. jail. He got to leave to uh, go to his office. Um, he got probation afterward. He, the circumstances for him were unlike anyone else and it says there it was a 53 page federal indictment he could have gone to jail for life there's a court documents fbi records thousands of emails and eyewitness accounts and he got nothing so of all people ben sass has come forward uh this week a top republican senator republican nebraska wrote a series of letters to the department of justice after the miami uh herald article by julie k brown the fact the monster received a pathetically soft sentence is a travesty that should outrage us all. There's also um, several groups that are suing. There are 34 senators so far that have come forward. To- I don't think this story is over, Jennifer. No, and the silence on the part of the other Republicans is shocking. It's revolting because we're talking about young girls here, women under 18 that were forced to do this, that were procured... It's just awful. Well, and the, these most of these women uh, that we know about, they're they're in their 30s now, and they weren't even allowed their day in court. Oh no, they're they're at this point with the Miami Herald article, they're pleased to be heard at all. Yeah, and Alexander Acosta made this giant deal, and everybody's kind of wondering why. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, it's to protect the guilty, mm-hmm. uh, of which Epstein is one. And by the way. Um, if you read that he was a high-powered investment banker, he isn't. He hasn't been since 1981. No, a journalist for the for Vanity Fair did a, a piece that was killed for the magazine, um, and she said that she couldn't find out the source of his fortune. Right. So 
Is it the Russians? And I'm not just saying that lightly. He has <laughs> Russian connections. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that he was barred from Mar-a-Lago at one point. Um, you can read all about it in the article, but it is really some shocking, horrible stuff. On another note, uh, the holidays are uh, rapidly coming toward us. And remember Th that's that... That's quite a segue. Do you like that? Yeah. You like how I glided <laughs> out really of that nice. shittiest topic of male privilege and toxic... Well, the only way to you know to cleanse this whole situation is to bring it out in the open yep. and that's what's so wonderful about the editors and the the reporters for the miami herald that they covered this at all they're to be lauded for it uh, uh the miami herald and julie k brown because they're doing the work of the angels as you say the only way is to shine a light on these cockroaches yeah, the sheriff is still the same in palm beach who won't who's they, not all, budging. There, there are all these people that want to shut this story down mm -hmm. and she persisted so no uh, much to, her, to no reward of her own uh it, it's she's been braver beyond than all comprehension and measure and uh you know time justice grinds slowly on on a million different fronts but I really don't want to hear about um, if you feel like your male privilege is being impinged upon. And I've heard a little bit about it this week. Hannah Gadsby had something to say about it the other night. And she said, "Nice. every guy thinks they're a nice guy and that uh, we keep moving the goalposts. And uh, I noticed a lot of guys were real upset about that. And it's like, you can't accept that men make the rules. Well, all these stories we've gone Guys over? choosing when it's not okay for other guys. Mm -hmm. That's also her point. I didn't hear what you said because you were a woman. <laughs> um, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, it. It's too much. So if you're a man, uh, check it at the door. Help some women. Uh, this holiday, uh, there's people in your neighborhood that need your help. There's mm -hmm. people who live down the block from you. There's people who live across the street from you. Uh, they could use a smile. They could use an apple. They could use a piece of candy. Uh, you don't have to save the world. Um, saving the world is difficult. It would be awesome, though, to do one nice thing. Uh, and if you can't, just try to be nice to yourself for five seconds. Remember, there's no demands on you this holiday season. Um, if your parents make you feel awful about yourself or your family or whoever it is you have to go deal with makes you feel awful about yourself, don't go do that if you can. If you can possibly not do it, don't do that. Um, I'm giving you dispensation as um, uh, Pope Greg the 17th, 26th, is it? Uh, uh, there's been a lot of popes named Gregory. I want you to know that. And I'm, I have elected myself Pope Proops. <laughs> And uh, you can tell because there was smoke coming out of the chimney this morning, black smoke. Jennifer saw it, and it blew toward the left-hand side of the pericanthus bush here. Uh, and that's how you know that my edict will stand and that my papal bull is no bullshit. Um, so look after yourself uh, and make sure that um, you give a thought, uh, not only to uh, other people around you, but uh, to yourself as well. And um, if you uh, have a chance to do something uh, positive for women it would be really nice if you did and by that I mean if at your work they go like we have a new rule that no man can meet with a woman alone without other women in the room that's not helping them um, women aren't asking to be treated like alien creatures from another planet they're asking to be treated as equals mm -hmm. and that means that you desexualize yourself your crappy thoughts and you deal with your impulses not them uh, I noticed that that's been happening a lot and that all these companies are coming up with rules like 
oh, if we don't leave men alone with women, then everything will be cool. Well, that's exactly the opposite. Kind of like that hilarious story this week about how we were going to have an all-female mission to Mars so that they wouldn't have sex with each other. And it was four sexy women astronauts staring into the camera together. And every lesbian comic in America was like, right. <laughs> There's one way to ensure... <laughs> A 15-year mission with four women in it. These are four scientists. They're coming back with a baby, you guys. <laughs> There's going to be a 15-year-old girl with them when they come back. Uh, anyway, uh, have a happy holiday. We'll see you soon. I hope there'll be one more before. Uh, oh, I wanted to mention that uh, Liz Winstead had oh, yes. a list of uh, the women's clinics. They're under siege. Uh, the clinic that we visited in Jackson, Mississippi, has an Amazon wish list, as does the women's clinic in uh, Charleston, West Virginia. And they're really simple products that would just make their patients' lives a little easier. That's the Pink House in Jackson, Mississippi, and the Women's Health Center of West Virginia. Health Clinic? Women's Health Center. Center of West Virginia. Uh, we will be at the um, Punchline uh, at the end of the month, Friday, December uh, 28th for stand-up, Saturday, December 29th for stand-up, Sunday, December 30th for the Smartest Man in the World podcast, and then New Year's Eve on the 31st. And you'll see us there and then. Until then, I leave you with the awesome Aretha Franklin and her version of this Christmas. Oh. And there's a Narisa documentary coming out. Hello. Hi. Merry Christmas, sweetening. How are you? Oh, I'm cooking. The bell's ringing. People are running back and forth, coming in and out. The kids are here, you know. Ah, cooking everything. Okay. Oh, my food is burning. I'll call you back. Yeah.